welcome to ReligionWise, the podcast where we feature educators, researchers, and other professionals discussing topics on religion and their relevance to the public conversation. My name is Chip Gruen. I'm the director of the Institute for Religious and Cultural Understanding at Muhlenberg College, and I will be the host for this podcast. Today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Tim Loftus to ReligionWise. He is a recently minted PhD uh, in May of 2022 from Temple University on Tibetan Buddhism. In today's conversation, we not only talk about Buddhism, but we talk about the reception of Buddhism in various cultural landscapes at different times, um, not only in India, um, but also in uh, Western Europe and the United States. I think this is an interesting conversation because it seeks to destabilize the idea of a pure, in this case, Buddhist tradition. We could say the same about Christianity or Hinduism or Islam. Um, but one of the things that anybody in religious studies, anybody who studies religion academically will attest to is that there are great diversities of all of these traditions within different times and different places um, around the world and throughout time. And so we really think about the problems with thinking about what a pure Buddhism from 500 BCE would look like. What are the sources for that? Um, given the absence of a lot of good sources for that, how is the tradition constructed or reconstructed in later time periods? And then beyond that, how does that tradition fit or not fit in the Western cultural landscape, for example? How does a story get told of the Buddhist tradition that suits particular values, agendas, or narratives? Now, I don't want this to seem like this is an overly pessimistic or cynical take on Buddhism. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Instead, it's a recognition that the human practice of religion, whether it be in Asia, North America, Europe, Africa, um, Central, South America, Australia, wherever, is complicated. And to imagine a orthodox description of any religious tradition becomes a theological rather than historical or academic endeavor. And so it was great fun to talk to Dr. Loftus about these issues and how they pertain to Buddhism, about the translation of Buddhism to the West and how that happens in a number of different historical contexts, how Buddhism is considered and understood today, and how we might get a richer, more fuller understanding of this ancient tradition. Welcome to ReligionWise, Tim Loftus. Hey, Chip. Thanks for having me. It's really, it's great to be here. So a lot of our conversation today is going to be digging down into particular cultural translations of Buddhism, um, how the tradition changes when it goes into different, um, different cultural manifestations and so forth. But before we can get there, I think it would be really helpful for our audience just to hear Buddhism on one foot, if you will, just what, you know, for someone who doesn't know a lot about the tradition, where does it come from? What are some of the central tenets? Um, how can we begin to understand this tradition? Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's probably a lot of um, sort of like in the popular imagination, a sense of Buddhism, um, 
being generally an Asian tradition, um, which is the case. I mean, in root, you know, that's where that's where it comes from originally. But I think it's important to note that Buddhism c- comes out of South Asia specifically. It's an Indian religion originally, and it's coming out of the Vedic context. So that so when you think about South Asia and India, think about Hinduism. Um, I think it's important to kind of put Buddhism into that family um, and recognize the Buddha as a kind of historical figure was in that milieu. He was um, a Hindu, if you will, for lack of a better term, and a bit of a reformer. So he is at the beginning of what we think of as the renunciate tradition uh, in South Asia. So he renounced his uh, status, his his caste, his um, claim to the throne. Uh, he was a prince and uh, began wandering and uh, practicing asceticism, meditation, um, in search of some kind of like higher spiritual knowledge, right? Inspired by really the Upanishads, this Upanishadic tradition gave rise to this uh, renunciate movement. And he um, is, is coming out of, we call that the Shramana tradition, where um, the rise of kind of wandering mendicants in India, which now I think we kind of associate with India generally, but this is kind of the beginning of that movement. Jainism, Buddhism, um, Ajivaka, these, these renunciate traditions uh, come out of this moment, like 500 BCE, where um, this kind of wandering tradition really took off. Um, Buddhism being the most famous and kind of well-established of those renunciate traditions that continues uh, into the present. Um, so the so kind of in a general sense, the, the goal of Buddhism is to emulate that path that the Buddha um, kind of undertook in renouncing his worldly life um, and in search of some kind of spiritual attainment. Um, there's a kind of an understanding in the Buddhist tradition that through effort uh, on the spiritual path, one can attain kind of a deeper realization about what it means to be a human, how to become free from suffering, essentially. One of the big insights the Buddha had after he uh, left his palace and, and began wandering was, um, it's called the, they're called the Four Noble Truths, where he became kind of acutely aware of the reality of uh, kind of a universal sense of suffering that people have. Suffering in kind of a general sense associated with pain, but also a more kind of existential suffering where um, we kind of have this yearning for a deeper meaning, right? Like a sense that something is wrong. And that drove him to um, find something something beyond our kind of regular rat race sort of approach to, to uh, living. So that's kind of built in or kind of baked into the uh, sense of... Um, how Buddhism works, I think, at least in a kind of general sense, that that through effort on the spiritual path, one can attain some kind of deeper understanding about what is true, what it is to be a human, how to um, break free from suffering. So one of the things that you didn't mention here, and I just want to underscore for the audience, is that there's not any... um, you know, in in the forms of Buddhism that you're talking about, there's not any idea of reverence for deity, um, the importance of gods, um, so much so that in religious studies, uh, sometimes there's conversation about whether, you know, Buddhism, you know, depending on how you define religion, whether Buddhism fits into the category or not. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it separates a little itself a little bit from that uh, older Hindu tradition that you mentioned? Yeah, there is. Yeah, exactly. There is this sort of longstanding um, kind of tension, I guess, in the reception of Buddhism in the West about like whether to think of it as atheistic or non-theistic or what is the kind of uh, status of transcendence or like is there a God or something else? Um, 
and the kind of settlement, I guess, that's been sort of reached regarding this, like, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama has described Buddhism as like a non-theistic tradition. And that's generally, I think, um, the way scholars and maybe in like popular imagination, we think about Buddhism as non-theistic. So this idea that Buddhism is just not taking a stance on the issue, that it's more concerned with um, describing kind of mind and mental events, describing the way in which uh, suffering happens, and then leaving whatever happens after the the uh, alleviation of suffering or the elimination, nirvana, which is this word that means like extinction or the end of suffering, um, that is left unarticulated in kind of the the original maybe let's say like in a basic sense. Um, so it's almost like this not this this kind of take on non-theism is sort of like, well, maybe there is or maybe there isn't. We're, we're, not, we're not that interested in talking about like what, what's happening afterwards. It's almost as if like one was stuck in a dark room. You know, uh, I think the Buddhist stance would be, well, we could sit and talk about how great it is outside the room. You know, we could describe the, the landscape and the sun and the sky and the green grass and all of that. Um, but that doesn't help us get out of the room, you know? So instead of sitting around and talking about that, we could give instructions, like maybe take 10 steps to the left, feel the wall and you'll feel a doorknob and then you, you can get out. What ha what's outside is something that like what one would, would see when they get there. There's not much sort of being articulated about what that world is. So that I think is like maybe a way of thinking about this kind of non-theism. It's not so much like there is or there isn't. It's sort of like, it's not a fruitful conversation from a Buddhist point of view to like speculate on that sort of like ontological kind of like question, is it or is it not there, you know? So a lot of your work um, concentrates on this contemporary South Asian Buddhist movement um, uh, that is associated with B.R. Ambedkar? Ambedkar, right. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, and I want to use that and your work as a doorway into thinking about how this tradition emerges, as you mentioned, in about 500 BCE, long time ago, um, for people who are keeping score, about 500 years before uh, the emergence of Christianity. Um, but then, you know, over the course of the millennia, it, because of the different contexts, it might, it, it, develops, right? And it takes on the, um, you know, cultural attitudes and values and so forth um, that are around it. Um, and this is true of any any religious tradition. So I want to start with this contemporary South Asian um, Buddhism that you do your work on. And then after that, we can think also about the translation to the West um, that happens at various times, both in, in Western Europe, uh, in particular, and, and in the United States. Yeah. Um, I mean, Buddhism is an interesting case, right, in some ways in this, with regard to this, because um, it was eliminated from the Indian subcontinent, you know, around maybe, let's say, 1100 CE, like aroundabouts, right, due to several factors, like Hindu, Hindu pressures, um, kind of competitive pressures from uh, Hindu or Brahminical religionists in India, you could say, and then outside uh, Muslim invasions, um, the Buddhism was basically completely eliminated from the subcontinent with a few ex like exceptions like Sri Lanka or Nepal. But um, it creates this vacuum, right, where we don't, we don't know that much about what, um, nothing was written down in, in uh, the Buddhist tradition until uh, pretty late. Like some of the earliest texts that we have actually like written texts are really only around, you know, 200 CE-ish. Um, so there's a big gap 
in this kind of uh, reconstruction. And then even from 200 CE until that ending of Buddhism in the subcontinent, a lot of what re we're relying on is the translation work done uh, by the Chinese in, in Tibet to reconstruct the picture of Buddhism there. So it creates this vacuum where um, we can sort of imagine, we can rely on our imagination um, to kind of fill in the gaps about like what Buddhism looked like in India. Um, and that has created, I think, opportunity for kind of a particularly like modernist inflected idea of what kind of the nature of Buddhism is, um, because we're kind of, we're creating it in, in many ways in a way that's kind of unique to Buddhism because of that, the, the vacuum that was created by its absence in India. So the story that I told about the Buddha and about the kind of the essence of Buddhism, I think you can probably hear in it, this, this particular, uh, kind of maybe liberal inflection, you know, there's this individual sort of quest for meaning and, um, you know, this emphasis on contemplation and rationality. And um, I think it's safe to say that um, a lot of that is present in the texts that we that we do have. And we, we look back to recreate this kind of idea of Buddhism. It's there, we can read it. But um, we also are, I think, missing a lot of other stuff, right? We're, we're creating a particular kind of like modernist inflected Buddhism, inflected by like these discourses of liberalism in particular, individualism, contemplation, scientific compatibility, rationalism, um, the stuff that we often associate with Buddhism. So it's a little bit reconstructive, right? And Ambedkarite Buddhism, so you referenced my my particular interest there, is is a particularly interesting example because it's it's a modernist movement that, um, for those who don't know, B. R. Ambedkar was this uh, figure in monumentally important figure in India. He was you know, the chief architect of the Constitution. Um, he studied at Columbia with John Dewey. He uh, went to London School of Economics. Did, did a PhD there. He did a PhD at Columbia. He uh, was the first law minister of India. Um, massively important figure, but he did all of this as an untouchable. So um, when you kind of factor that into it, it's almost impossible, the, the kind of uh, profile that he was able to kind of like, you know, create the impact that he had. Um, and one of the most incredible things about him that's not often discussed is that he converted to Buddhism just before his death in 1956. He decided there was no place for him as an untouchable and other untouchables, formerly untouchable people now called Dalits um, in India. And they converted to Buddhism in mass, and probably the largest mass conversion moment in modern human history. There was about 600,000 people at the ceremony, and then like millions follow. There's now about 7 million Dalit um, Ambedkarite Buddhists in India. And they created this, this new modernist kind of form of Buddhism that is a conversion movement like we see in Europe and in America. But this story that they tell about who the Buddha was and... Um, what the important teachings are of Buddhism are very, very different than what we see in Europe and in America. So where in America, we see this kind of transcendentally inflected, kind of inflected by the discourses of liberalism, as I was describing before, we see this very ethically oriented tradition in, in South Asia, in Ambedkarite Buddhism, where um, the Buddha is seen as a social reformer, uh, a re a, someone who kind of really prominently rejected caste and um, Ambedkarite Buddhists today like build clinics and schools and are politically active and they think about Buddhism as sort of like a, a theological ground to, for social action, you know, where in the West, I think we often, that would be a shock, I think, to think about Buddhism as being um, kind of a liberation theology.
So it, yeah, there are all these different kind of iterations at different times and in different places. And even in like the modernist sort of moment, you know, um, Ambedkarite Buddhism can, can provide this contrast of like, even just shifting the dial a little bit to South Asia, you get this very different modernist presentation of Buddhism. So yeah, that was a lot. And, you know, I think it's also interesting to say that like, you can watch um, Buddhism in India, even in its original Indian context, where the early tradition we associate with Pali, uh, the Pali language. But as as Buddhism becomes more um, kind of marinated in Brahminical culture in India, it takes on Sanskrit, a Buddhist uh, hybrid Sanskrit as a, as a text language develops. And you get this sort of more high culture, more kind of Buddhist elite. Um, the establishment of Buddhist monasteries and great universities happens in India during the golden period. So you see Buddhism being kind of like pulled up um, out of maybe the renunciant tradition that the Buddha, uh, that is associated with the Buddha originally. So this kind of constant shifting, as you noted, like common across religious traditions. But Yeah, and I just want to um, jump in here and underscore, lest anybody get the misconception that, uh, you know, Buddhism is this, you know, shifting thing that you can't get your hands on, um, not like my religious tradition, right? <laughs> that this is that, you know, you study religion, you know, of, of any stripe, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, you know, go spread the gamut, that you'll see incredible diversity within any of those traditions for these very same reasons, right? That the context is different, the time is different, the uh, values that are espoused by the community is different. So you mentioned, you know, the sort of liberation theology kind of uh, tilt of this particular type of Buddhism in contemporary India, you know, go and look at liberation, you know, that word liberation theology comes, comes out of, you know, Catholic tradition in South and Central America that has particular um, either liberal or even more left-leaning socialist, yeah, Marxist, yeah. Yeah, Marxist um, tendencies, right? Which is, of course, very different than, you know, other types of Christianity that lean, um, you know, as we're reminded of daily, you know, further and further rightward in right. many parts of the world. So, you know, this is, this is the way that, that religion works. It's not, it's not corruption, of religion. It's not, you know, it's not cynical in any way. Um, it just, you know, reflects um, not only influences, but reflects um, cultural attitudes and values that surround it. Right. Um, I mean, and it's interesting to note, like, that we don't know Dr. Ambedkar's name very, um, you know, popularly in the West, where we may know Gandhi's name, right? Where um, that's Gandhi is a household a name, I think, at this point in kind of Euro-America. But we don't know Ambedkar's name. And it's interesting given, like, as I was describing earlier, how prolific, you know, he was as a, I mean, he produced like 17 volumes of writing. He was a pragmatist, you know, as a student of Dewey, he, um, he wrote on economics, political economy, you know, he um, held political office. He was um, this huge figure. We don't know, we don't know his name, um, generally speaking. And, you know, he had this huge beef with Gandhi throughout his life. These two, it's not an uh, an overstatement to say they were actual enemies, you know. Um, so this is fascinating kind of like conspicuous omission in our imagination about um, what is, I mean, from my point of view, concerned about religion or thinking about religion and Buddhism, why don't we know his name? Um, and it, I think one of the interesting kind of avenues for thought about that why is um, the way in which there is this kind of like 
um, coalescing or um, kind of attempt to nail down, well, like, that's not Buddhism. And a lot of the scholarship that has been uh, written about his approach to Buddhism in particular has kind of focused on that. Or, uh, you know, apologists will say like, well, it is this big deviation from the norm, but it still counts. Or, um, or those who, who argue that it's just too far afield, that it's not, doesn't concentrate enough on meditation. It's not, uh, it doesn't look enough like the kind of Buddhism that we imagine in the West inflected by our own presuppositions so that, um, it's, it's too far afield. It's, it's not Buddhism. Um, so we see that even happening right now that like there is this thing called Buddhism and it has these particular features and yeah, this kind of natural tendency. And Ambedkar can, can really uh, disrupt a lot of those commitments, I think, in a very interesting way. Yeah, I always find it really interesting that that can be a, a kind of distinction that I'm going to be cynical here for a minute, masquerades and scholarly clothing right? That real Buddhism looks like this or real Christianity looks like this or what have you. But I've always found that when you start making those distinctions sooner or later, they become theological rather than scholastic, scholarly, academic distinctions. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point. And Buddhism, again, I mean, obviously I have, uh, I think it's it's a particularly interesting example in this regard. (laughs) I may be biased there, but, but because, um, Again, maybe because of that absence or the, the initial reception of the category through the lens of, let's say, transcendentalism yeah. um, via like theosophy, which was this kind of movement, this kind of occultist movement um, he- um, spearheaded by people like Madame Blavatsky or Colonel, Colonel Alcott, sorry. Um, these kind of big, you know, interesting occultist figures who were kind of like Colonel Alcott in particular, you know, were kind of interested in a re spiritualization of Christianity, a a kind of creation of a universal perennial spirituality. And they sought to do it through the construction of Buddhism. And in some ways, really consciously, we're we're constructing a new Buddhism, if you will, right? Um, That then got kind of interculturally through like a a process of uh, mimesis, right? I think... um, Charles Hallisey and Richard King have taken up this idea of intercultural mimesis where, or maybe the pizza effect where like um, something gets exported, like, like pizza gets exported from Italy becomes an American thing. And then, you know, now there's pizza huts all over in Rome, you know, people buying this sort of American thing, right? Like Buddhism, you can think about like the construction of Buddhism via theosophy is this sort of like pizza effect where they they're taking this sort of ostensibly at least Asian thing, making it into this sort of rational science, universal religion sort of thing, and then sending it back, you know, like to Sri Lanka in particular, right? Colonel Olcott goes there and he does this whole kind of like through with Dharmapala, um, Anagartika, right? They, they create this new um, rational movement that exists today, right? So you have this, this self-identification from Asian elites, Asian monastic elites with this Buddhism that's inflected by this, uh, Euro-American kind of um, liberalism, if you will, right? Um, without much memory of anything that was that happened prior, you know. Um, so there's this interesting kind of um, case with Buddhism, I think, where because it's re- it's received in this really kind of consonant way, consonant with a lot of the dominant discourses like of liberalism, then um, it's it's kind of a darling, you know, it's, it's not very threatening, right? It's, it's nice. It's rational. It's sort of like, it's private. It's not, um, it doesn't make any like kind of demands socially. 
Whereas like in contrast, we could think about Islam as this sort of like, like if Buddhism is the darling child, Islam is maybe the problem child in terms of the construction of a, of a world religion and, and you know, your American scholarly mind. Islam is kind of antinomical, I think, right? Um, generally speaking, to uh, liberal commitments. It's this kind of, uh, it's imagined to be as, uh, you know, violent or, or uh, regressive or primitive or something. And anti-liberal. So a lot of post-colonial scholarship, people like Said or, or um, Assad, right, um, Sabah Mahmoud, that have been writing really cogently and critically about liberalism. You know, it's no, I think it's no coincidence that's coming from this uh, Islamic studies or from the Islamic point of view. Um, whereas from the Buddhist work, I think from Buddhist studies point of view, we're kind of really behind the curve. You know, there's there's still this ability to just sit back and translate texts, focus on the literary tradition, talk about meditation, and everybody's fine with that because there's not a, there's no real sort of um, push to like go harder. You know, I think there was a moment maybe like 15 years ago where there was this like this burst of literature, uh, critic, like a drawing on critical religion theory um, from Buddhist studies point of view, but it seems that we seem to have like stepped back and we're doing a lot of more just sort of good old fashioned philology lately. So um, it's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It didn't have to be that way though. Right. I mean that you could get a translation of Buddhism, you know, and I think that we see this in other parts of the world, although not major traditions where the concept of the community is, is big. I mean, because that's oh. that, you know, you talk about the individual versus versus the community in Islam, you know, the, the sort of the dominant paradigm of how that gets exported is very interested in community and how one acts in community with other people. Whereas, you know, that's present in Buddhism, right? Totally. But it just I hasn't been almost, emphasized. Totally. It's almost more compelling. Like, I feel like you could tell a really interesting, compelling story through that lens. You know, this, mm -hmm. there's a whole body of text. So the, the Buddhist canon textually is divided into three baskets, it's called, like the Sutra Pitaka, the Abhidharma Pitaka. The Sutra Pitaka is like the stories of the Buddha. Um, Thus have I heard the Buddha was at this place and this happened. Then the Abhidharma Pitaka is this basket where um, a lot of those sutra teachings get distilled into like lists and numbers. It's sometimes thought of as like Buddhist psychology, describing mind and mental events or the kind of distilled points. And then uh, the Vinaya, which is um, the third basket. And the entire basket is about basically how to live in community. It's, it's ethical prescriptions for um, what to do and what not to do. Um, these original followers of the Buddha, when he became a renunciant, wanted to, uh, you know, hang out with him, follow him around, and rules had to be made, and they got more and more compli complicated and articulated, and it turned into an entire body of texts that um, are used to this day to organize monastic life. You know, we often, Buddhism, it, there's no way around, like, and it is the case, Buddhism has been pretty monastically oriented wherever it has gone. Um, and there's some interesting exceptions exceptions to that, but but monasticism has been a part of Buddhism from the beginning. So you could tell a really interesting story. And Ambedkar is somebody actually who does something like this, who who really kind of radically tries to rethink what the sangha or the community um, is in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and he does it along these lines of uh, kind of bringing the laity in and making these kind of. Uh, demands on the on monastics to serve as kind of servants or social um, models for how to live um, an ethically oriented life, as opposed to being renunciates who go kind of live in a secluded separate place, which is often um, 
the way we think about it in contemporary Buddhism, or maybe even has been practiced historically. So this more kind of engaged idea of Sangha um, that would very much make demands on, um, you know, that would raise red flags about, for example, Google using me mindfulness meditation to squeeze like more productivity per employee, you know, out of, uh, you know, to increase revenue or whatever, right? So like these kind of questions about like, well, should the military be using mindfulness meditation to be like uh, helping snipers fire more, you know, accurately under pressure? These are, these are big questions. And a more ethically oriented, um, maybe less darling kind of reception of Buddhism, I think would, if you will, would um, have this ability to push back a little bit, you know? Zizek wrote a piece, not, I guess, a, a little while ago at this point, arguing that um, if we're not careful, Buddhism, the reception of Buddhism will make, you know, Calvinism look like kind of child's play in terms of its ability to buttress the the dominant uh, power dynamic, you know, capitalism, generally speaking. So you mentioned something, and I want to sort of take a break and go back a little bit um, just to sort of fill in some gaps because uh, honestly, because this is something that's super interesting to me. Um, but when we talk about the translation of, of Buddhism to the United States, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've, you've mentioned one of the historical periods here being, you know, sort of the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. We see the rise of spiritualists. I would also point to the world parliament of religions in yeah. Chicago as being a really big point where people are exposed to Asian, um, Southeast and East and South Asian thought from a lot of people. If you don't know anything about out there and in, in listeners, if you don't know anything about the world parliament of religions, it's an interesting thing to look up, um, you know, simply because photography had, had emerged at that point too. It's just really interesting to look at the, the, um, uh, the, the records of, of that particular meeting. Um, so that's one, um, historical period I'd like to talk about as, as we get, and you've mentioned this a little bit already, but I'd like to flesh that out a little bit. Um, and then the other one is that we get the liberalization of immigration policy from um, Asia generally in the 1960s. Um, and I think that that really changes the face of the kinds of um, or the presence of, of not only communities, but ideas um, in our world that then that then really, you know, sort of grow and develop in that period as well. So I'd, I'd like to highlight both of those and think about how those have affected the growth and development and, and how we think about Buddhism um, in in the contemporary West. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I think the world Parliament, 1893 World Parliament is this as you know, a really important moment. And Dharmapala was there, like along with Swami Vivekananda. I think um, Swami Vivekananda, who was this um, kind of neo-Hindu, neo-Vedanta uh, Bengali Renaissance figure who um, was engaged along with a, a few other kind of modernist uh, South Asian kind of pre-independence figures who were interested in thinking about how to export Hinduism or respond to the colonial enterprise in a way that kind of re-empowered people um, in the subcontinent uh, to kind of push back, right, to, to kind of reclaim some high ground that um, Hinduism can be conceptualized as, as rational, as modern, as, you know, um, we had these ideas in our Vedas, you know, uh, these scientific ideas in our Vedas, you know, thousands of years before uh, the Britishers kind of came up with them, this sort of like re-empowering narrative or, or um, project. 
along with like the Arya Samaj, the Brahma Samaj, this sort of like moment that was happening. And Dharmapala was there as well, um, who is a really important Sri Lankan figure and brought Buddhism into the conversation in a similar way. Um, but what's interesting there about that, I think, is where Swami Vivekananda made big waves and we are continuing to, to continuing to feel them. Um, the, the picture that we get through that presentation is a pretty Brahminically inflected, if you mm -hmm. will, like high caste sort of way of thinking about what um, South Asian religion is, if you will. And it's inflected with this kind of Orientalist, maybe mystical East kind of way of thinking about religion in the subcontinent. And I think that continues to this day because the diaspora, the maybe religious, your second point about the way in which the doors opened to Asia uh, via immigration, the people who were able to come here from South Asia largely have been, continued to be, um, from Savarna or higher caste um, backgrounds, um, just because maybe they're more well-off or they've had access to accumulate wealth and can leave India. Um, so the picture that we've gotten about religion in South Asia has been sort of from monophonic, if you will. It's it's uh, Brahminical. Um, Dharmapala went back to Sri Lanka through the theosophists, um, reanimated this sort of like Buddhist revival movement, but then he broke with them um, over this construction of like a universalist religion, more in line with that like Vivekananda project that like continues to inflect our understanding about like yoga and mysticism and stuff. Then Buddhism in Sri Lanka, although having its roots in this theosophy movement, um, took this turn into like ethics where um, Sarvodhya Shramandana is this movement that in Sri Lanka that continues to be very active and important in thinking about um, Buddhism as an indigenous and nationalist kind of na nation building project. So there's all kinds of like road building and works projects and stuff that are built on like Buddhist ideals in Sri Lanka that then influenced Ambedkar in the creation of his um, Buddhism in India. Um, so we get this sort of like, I think here in the West, I guess the point being is we get this kind of particularly inflected view of what um, religion is like via Vivekananda and then continued through this sort of like imagination of Gandhi as this, you know, this sort of mystical man and his dhoti or his, his loincloth and staff and, you know, this kind of like spiritual thing. We do our yoga and it's all very like spiritual or whatever. Um, but that's it's because I think through this vehicle through which we're receiving it through the diaspora that is like largely high caste and has maybe benefited from, you know, like the Boston Brahmins received the literal Brahmins from from India to construct this um, kind of elite transmission line kind of project. Lost in that is like the everyday sort of quotidian aspect of like, you know, the way in which religion just is a basic meaning making, moral meaning making vehicle um, in people's lives. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know. That's a long kind of one thing. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, what's coming through to me and, and I'd like your, your take on this, um, is the way in which even though we might have separate chains of transmission through 
Hindu channels or Buddhist channels, different immigrant communities, different leaders, whether they be from Sri Lanka or Bengal or, or what have you at the world parliament or moving forward. I'm just thinking about the suburbanite in the contemporary yeah. United States who loves, who says, oh yeah, I'm a Buddhist. I go to yoga, right? you know, and really mixes, <laughs> you know, mixes these things up. Right. And, and right. sort of takes this sort of general sense of, um, of, 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 of Eastern traditions, and, and right. you can't see my scare quotes I'm making, and just sort of puts them in the blender, right? right. And that that's, that's the, you know, again, not the, the, the proper, the pure, um, the unadulterated form of the traditions, right. but it is the public discourse on these traditions in our world that, that we encounter. Right. Yeah. I think a little bit I'm veer, I'm trying to just be descriptive, but I'm sure there's some hint of like a normative stance in here. And a little bit, I mean, I know you're like, when you look at Buddhism in like in the in the West, for example, there largely are two different camps, like in historically, like scholars have kind of thought about it this way, where there are immigrant communities. So people who have come from Asian traditions and continue to practice their form of Buddhism with their community, right? Um, so like here in Philadelphia, where I am, there are Cambodian, Thai, Vietnamese, a lot of temples in South Philadelphia, but then there are uh, another camp, right, where there are these meditation centers or even more religiously oriented um, Buddhist centers, but almost exclusively populated by converts who are largely white, middle to upper middle class, highly literate, highly educated people who are coming to Buddhism through this kind of maybe initial popular contact via, you know, maybe reading or um, whatever kind of media they've used to consume this thing, right? So there's historically been these two different kind of camps and there's a lot of discourse around why that is or whether that's a problem or not a problem or um, who who gets to claim what Buddhism is. It's this sort of like open question, you know. Um, but I think a larger point around that is is just the fact that, you know, that's kind of the way it is at this point. You know, like modernity is the tentacles are totally all reaching. Now, there's not I don't think there's a part of the world we can say that it's not affected by modernity, even like uncontacted peoples right at this point are like the pressures from like modernity is like just a fact. So I think we, we maybe in this is a normative stance, we do need to get past this discourse of purity. And maybe a lot of what I've been saying is like, there really isn't, it's, it's, it's pretty much impossible. I think at this point to, um, articulate or find some kind of pure Buddhism. It's so complicated by the original kind of reception, that vacuum of Buddhism and its original, that huge vacuum, right? That it's disappearance from the subcontinent. It's where our reliance on its transmission via, you know, multiple different kind of cultural backgrounds. Um, and then just our ability to access beyond the horizon, if you will. You know, this is just sort of like the, the problem that post-colonial theorists are always pointing to, or subalterns at least saying, well, how can we know what traditional is, right? We're, we're limited by our own methodologies. And, and um, really the task seems to be just to be honest with like a reflexive stance and recognize that we're studying our own kind of um, presuppositions and commitments as much, as much as any kind of ostensible object out there. So there's something sort of maybe a little bit not so satisfying about that stance, but it's also kind of honest, I think, right? Where where um, there never was a Buddhism, you know, um, and then that can kind of we can kind of go down a pretty pretty 
pretty deep hole with that. And some scholarship does thinking about like, where does the idea of Buddhism actually start? You know, like where do people, where do people actually say like, I am a Buddhist? And it's actually, I think it's pretty late, you know, it's, it seems to be like in the, during the colonial period where, where maybe prior to that, Buddhism is one of the many kind of multivocal, you know, you have, you have Yogacaran Buddhists, Yamaka Buddhists, and you have like Vedanta, proponents of Vedanta and um, all this sort of like uh, tons of loud kind of chaotic discourse happening in the classical Indian tradition. And it's not clear that people are conceptualizing themselves as like religionists, maybe in the way that, that, that we would now, you know? Um, so that kind of, retrospectively kind of creating this category is more like a product of our own way of carving up the world than it is in anything actually having been there in that way, you know? Yeah. So you um, mentioned just the term, you know, talking about modernism and mo- and I just want to highlight, you know, you say, you know, it's everywhere, it's tentacles are everywhere. <laughs> and for those, you know, those out there who don't sort of get the implication of what you mean by that. I mean, can you highlight some of the key characteristics of modernism? Are you talking about, you know, competition? Are you talking about sort of the cafeteria attitude towards culture? Like what are some of the the, the things that are really highlight um, those tentacles of modernism that you talk about? Um, yeah, I think this sort of, well, maybe just from my own experience, I could say, sp- having spent a lot of time in India, um, I'm back and forth there much every year. I've lived there for extended periods of time. And I'm always still sort of um, taken by just how entrenched this sort of, like how the how market market economics are just sort of ubiquitous, how people, like getting an MBA is, um, you know, there's different kind of programs for getting an MBA on billboards all over the place, like in, you know, rural villages in India. So like this, this sort of orientation towards consumerism and, um, kids wearing like marble t-shirts in like, you know, Lhasa or something. So there's, there's just this kind of ubiquity of, um, I think, if you will, like, like modernity, for lack of a better term, I think. Um, And in terms of like, maybe Buddhism specifically to kind of keep it on topic, even just this idea of like Buddhism being so with the Ambedkarites that I've spent a lot of time with in India, it's clear to me that the way that they think about Buddhism is subaltern, if you will, but also very modernist. You know, they are text oriented. They are thinking about this as like an individual sort of like uh, path. The Buddha is this very rational kind of person, um, but it's an Asian iteration. You know, Ambedkar was was a student of Dewey, but came back and like engaged with this sort of indigenous religion, if you will. Um, There's no real escaping it, I think. Um, Yeah, I don't know if that answers it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm, I'm really interested in this, and and I've run into it in other other traditions um, as well, uh, you know, talking to other you know, um, other, other scholars of other religious traditions, but I'm interested in the the way that, you know, we think about lines of transmission for influence that we almost always as sort of our shorthand think of influence as going one way. Um, but it, it's not only going both ways, but it's imagine a continuing circle, you know, of things picking up accruing characteristics and then dumping them back again. Yeah. Um, that is just, it's just so interesting. One of the, the key things I'm, I'm taking away from this conversation. Yeah. I think this kind of like pizza effect idea. Um, I mean, I'm particularly kind of like taken, like, because I think the implications are pretty big, right? 
the maybe the natural impulse and sort of like diving into a more kind of critical reading of like the construction of the category of Buddhism or their initial reception or whatever is to say, oh, well, there's nothing there or we were wrong. There's this other thing or some kind of impulse to go back, maybe go back further. You know, well, what does the poly say or to kind of like uh, short circuit some of that um, culturally driven or like the presuppositions that are underneath the creation of this category to kind of short circuit that. But I think is a, maybe like a, a fool's errand, right? That's what kind of comes through from this is that like, even though there's no there there, so to speak, it doesn't have to turn into this kind of like nihilistic project. We can kind of be brought back to like, let's let's drop that whole thing and maybe adopt. I think Richard King has argued for like, maybe creating like a more um, kind of like cultural studies approach where like there is this sort of like, maybe what we're doing is like through the merging of horizons, right? We're, we're kind of like... Um, learning as much about ourselves as we are about other, right? And there's, and that's the work at the end of the day, right? The work isn't necessarily to um, nail down some kind of museumified kind of like accurate picture object or something, you know? Um, yeah, I think an, another way of saying that maybe, maybe, and you, you mentioned that you were aiming in our conversation to be descriptive, um, <laughs> but I, I really like, um, and this is something in my field in, in ancient Christianity that people talk about redescription all the time, even though, you know, even though we're talking about something from whatever, the second or the third century, we're talking about sort of picking up and describing it in its particular context at its particular moment. And again, not necessarily connecting it to you know a master narrative of the history of christianity but saying okay in i don't know carthage in yeah. this year this is what people are, are doing this is how people are are living in their world and we can we can describe that yeah. um which is not necessarily navel gazing about 21st century american identity right okay. which i think is the other side of the slope that we can go down yeah it's tricky, right? I think Ambedkar does this interesting project. One of the reasons he's really attacked is he he heavily re-narrates the life of the Buddha, like it strips out all kinds of um, details from what we find in uh, traditional sources, like Ashvagosa's Buddha Charita, which he leans on in other sutra sources. Um, but he he unapologetically says straight up what he's going to do. He's going to he's going to re-narrate the story, eliminate. He does this kind of Jeffersonian sort of move where he just cuts out all of the all of the magic stuff and just keeps it super rational. Um, and uh, and he, he he gets rid of the four noble truths. So that what I was saying earlier about this uh, focus on on psycho spiritual suffering of the individual, he just cuts that out. Puts this other kind of two like this other postulate in, um, in its place. Um, and he, he makes the Buddha basically like a member of a parliament, if you will, like a, a local parliament it becomes a democratic situation. Wow. And it's fascinating. Right. And he, he's aware that what he's doing is sort of radical, but I think as a student of Dewey, um, there's interesting kind of takes or arguments being made about how, how, just how influenced he was by American pragmatism. And you can see it in this re-narration of the, of the Buddha's life, how he's, he's sort of doing this other project where he's sort of like, Look, um, I don't have access to any of that early stuff. And part of the reason I don't have access is that Brahmins have been writing it. These, these powerful kind of dominant classes have been writing it, writing history. So, um, you know, they've left out a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I'm going to be driven by these basic principles. So like compassion, um, love, justice. And 
I'm going to build a story of the Buddha around these principles and basically use this kind of hermeneutic that says, if the, if the early texts uh, endorse or support these principles, then we keep it. And if it doesn't, then we cut it out. And we acknowledge we're creating this new thing. He calls it a Navayana, a new vehicle. But at the same time, he makes this argument that like this was the original kind of teaching of the Buddha, right? Um, but he doesn't point to the literary tradition necessarily. I mean, he, in some ways he does to point to that, like, you know, this is all in the sutra material. But he's also unapologetic to say that, like, well, I'm cutting all this other stuff out. You know, that stuff that was written by Brahmins or it's not in accord with what we know of, uh, like, an enlightened person would be like. Um, so it's this kind of, like, interesting, interesting move. He he kind of, and on the one hand, you could say, like, he's an opportunist. Um, you know, he's taking what he wants and and throwing out what he doesn't. Um, but on another, from this kind of pragmatic point of view, he's saying like, um, look, I'm interested in, in action. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. I, I'm trying, I'm trying to create this sort of like just world right now. I'm not interested in, in museums. You know, I'm not interested in like accuracy or like whatever for like history's sake. In fact, when people do that, you know, that's what the Brahmins do. They, they look to, um, and he's using that pejoratively. He's saying like, they look to these mantras and, and the Vedas as like written in stone. And it's very important that we, we pronounce each seed syllable properly and each syllable of each mantra properly. And only these people can do it. And it's kind of this religion of rules and ritual. Um, but it, it provides no kind of ground for like a just world. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting approach to this like yeah. So I have one more question for you, but but before we get there, I just want to gloss one more thing you said and that you you referred to that as Jeffersonian. For those of again, for those oh, of right. you out in, in podcast land who don't know it, Jefferson wrote his own version of the life of Jesus in which he stripped out um all Literally. of the miracles and the resurrection, right? right? Cut yeah, cut cut them out and said, yeah, that's just superstition. What's really important are the ethical teachings. And so he made his own. So that was the, the Jeffersonian reference. But I think, you know, particularly in the narrative we, we tell about, you know, sort of colonial America now or the, the late 18th century United States, um, that kind of thing gets forgotten is, is sort of written out of the narrative. All right. So the last, um, the last thing I always like to ask is, um, you know, one of the interests of religion wise is thinking about um, the public discourse on religion, right? Like how do we talk about not religion as a category? How do we talk about individual traditions within that? Um, you know, if, if I'm wanting to be an informed, you know, informed citizen that has a, 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 a well um, grounded discourse on Buddhism in the contemporary world is, I mean, is there anything that I should be paying attention to anything particular? I should be, um, not to make this overly academic, but I should be reading or, or somebody I should be listening to to really sort of get my hands around, you know, what, how Buddhism is being shaped in our world. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a couple, maybe there's like two prongs to that. I think when we look around the world of Buddhism right now, there's, it's almost, it's a little bit dark, actually. You know, there's there, the civil war in Sri Lanka, which um, kind of abruptly ended uh, with cameras turned off and, um Sinhalese kind of nationalist Buddhist sentiment finally, I think, uh, ended that situation violently. Um, Myanmar, you know, there's been a lot of kind of ethnic violence. Um, Rohingya people um, being pushed back into Bangladesh with a lot of violence. Um, there's, I think, a complicated narrative if we're paying attention that disrupts some of the kind of simplistic readings of Buddhism as just like, you know, a religion of peace or something or contemplation or or whatever. Like, it's a religion like any other, right? Um, so we can kind of maybe complicate our understanding in that way. But um, 
maybe something that would be good to read for Buddhism <laughs> would be um, Ambedkar. So I'm an Ambedkar person, right? Um, wrote this text called The Buddha and His Dhamma. He wrote it in English. Um, it's really accessible. And his intention in writing it was to create like a gospel, if you will, like a really kind of handy, contains everything, portable kind of thing. He calls it like a, could be a Buddhist gospel. Those are his words. Um, but it's a fascinating read because it turns a lot of what we, I think, uh, associate with Buddhism, not on its head, but, but um, adds another dimension to uh, what, how we could think about Buddhism acting in, in the world. So these basic kind of maybe theological or dharmological principles that are underneath the Buddhist tradition, like basic stuff like uh, interdependent origination um, or how Buddhists understand compassion, like self without a self, like how compassion can like inform action um, is kind of baked into that, that work. Um, but, you know, he kind of frames the Buddha as this person who kind of gets his hands dirty. Um, and I think, I think that is needed right now. Um, and it seems to be happening. I just gave a, a, a was a speaker, um, April 14th is um, the National Day of Recognition for Dr. Ambedkar in India. And there's been, Ambedkarites have been agitating for that to be kind of accepted more widely around the world for a long time. And in this past year, uh, Canada as a nation has recognized it. I think the state of Michigan, uh, state of New Jersey, um, it's been happening kind of, uh, different municipalities and stuff. Um, so I gave a talk in New Jersey and in, in Jersey city in the city hall, uh, city hall council chambers. Um, it was really well attended and it was really uh, kind of fantastic to see this sort of like maybe attention, um, complication of the narrative of like Buddhism being just this sort of like more self-help individualistic project to like how those principles, which are valid, um, can also inform like community, uh, engagement, ethics, justice, um, yeah, so the, so <laughs> I guess the button is dhamma. I would recommend it as a really awesome, interesting, fantastic read. As maybe a corrective to the way that Buddhism has been ingested in the West. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you, Tim Loftus, very much for joining us on Religion Wise. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Chip. This has been Religion Wise, a podcast produced by the Institute for Religious and Cultural Understanding of Muhlenberg College. For more information and additional programming, please visit our website at religionandculture.com. There, you'll find our contact information, links to other programming, and have the opportunity to support the work of the Institute. ReligionWise is produced by the staff of the Institute for Religious and Cultural Understanding of Muhlenberg College, including Christine Flicker and Carrie Duncan. Please subscribe to ReligionWise wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next time.